Thanksgiving? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, it, it is a wonderful holiday that I think often gets overlooked between Halloween and Christmas. And so um, uh, we're grateful for it. A, a new tradition in the Roadheaver family is to take part in our, uh, I guess, annual turkey bowl that we do here at the church. And it's nothing like a couple of 40, well, I think Tim and I were the only 50 plus on the field playing football with 20 year olds and 19 year olds. And like, we're feeling it. Like my back is still jacked up and Tim's ring fingers all sprained. So, but it's a good time. It's a good time. Well, I'm excited today. If you have a Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, you grab one of those in the pew in front of you. Uh, look, you're going to go to page 976. Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. We're going to finish up the chapter. So if you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be on page 976. And if you're new to looking at a Bible, I just want to encourage you, the big numbers are your chapter references and the small numbers are your verses. So when I say 1911, that means chapter 19, verse 11. Would you stand with me as we read the word of God? John writes, Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The fourth Sunday before Christmas is traditionally when Advent begins. Advent means coming, and it is a time of year when we consider the coming of Jesus into this world. In keeping with Advent tradition, Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21 is showing to us an advent of Jesus Christ. But it is certainly not the typical picture people have of Jesus coming into this world that they have during this time of year, is it? But this is, in fact, the same Jesus. And you could say that unless in your mind you have a, a category, you have a room, you have room for this Jesus as well as the Jesus who are used to at Advent season, the baby in the manger, unless you have a picture, a space for both of those, you really won't understand the significance of the Christmas holiday. It might be nostalgic and sentimental, but if you don't have this idea of Jesus, that's all it ever will be. 
Chapter 19 begins the finale of the book of Revelation. With chapter 19, we enter in the last and final section of the five sections of the book of Revelation. You see now we are in the section called the end. And outside of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, this is the longest description that we have of Jesus in the entire book. So what I want you to do is I want to keep your finger here in chapter 19. Go with me again to chapter 1. Let's be reminded of how Jesus was described at the very beginning of our study of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, starting in verse 13, we'll just read a few of those verses and notice the similarities. And in the midst of the lampstands, John writes, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So other than chapter 19 or chapter 1, chapter 19 is the longest description we have of Jesus in the book of Revelation. And you'll notice many of those similarities. The book of Revelation, as I taught you back in the introduction of this series, was written to the early first century Christians, many of whom were tired, tried, persecuted, marginalized, suffering, either ignored or scapegoated by their societies. And this vision here in chapter 19 ensures to the reader why God's conquest, God's victory is so guaranteed in the book of Revelation. Furthermore, why Christians can have such great confidence in Jesus Christ himself. As if to say by reading Revelation 19, if this is the Jesus that you have placed your hope and trust in, you really don't have anything to worry about at all, do you? I mean, that was an amazing picture of Jesus Christ in those five verses from 11 through 16. Now, there's a lot of big things happening in this final section of the book of Revelation, chapters 19 to 22. If you're familiar with Revelation, you know how, uh, if you thought things were crazy from the last few chapters, they get even more spectacular in the final chapters. But what chapter 19, verse 11 to 21 is trying to tell us in no uncertain terms is that the big picture, the big picture are actually not the catastrophic events, and there are many of them. They're not the big events, but it is this picture of Jesus Christ right here, the rider on the white horse. Keep in mind, almost as a bookend, at the very beginning of our study, this, this vision is kind of like the bookend of what John began to show us in chapter 4. Do you remember in chapter 4? I'll put the scriptures up here. John opened the vision. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now in chapter 19, then I saw heaven open. The door is completely open. It's not just a door. Now heaven is open entirely. And what's the first thing that John sees as he sees heaven opened entirely? The rider on the white horse. So in some sense, this is, this is kind of a bookend of a section 
where these magnificent visions are coming to a crescendo. In chapter 4, when John was ushered into the throne of God, he says, I saw a door opened in heaven. And chapter 19 says, I saw heaven opened. And the first thing I see is the rider on the white horse. He, Jesus, is the big picture we are supposed to be amazed at in a series of amazing pictures in this section of Revelation. And friends, th this is the constant challenge when reading the Bible, isn't it? We, we get dialed into the things Jesus says and the things he does, his parables, his miracles. But the challenge always and ever is to be amazed at him. Yes, the things he says, the things he does are amazing. That is the means by which we get to know him and his character. But we always need to be amazed at just himself. That is the heart of worship in so many ways. Now John makes it very easy for us to follow him in his text this morning. He gives us three literary markers. You see them there in, in, in verse 11, verse 17, and verse 19. Three times he says, verse 11, then I saw... Verse 17, then I saw, verse 19, and I saw. So John is helping us track the flow of what he's getting at in this section of Scripture. And what we see here, as heaven itself opens up and the finale of Revelation gets underway, John wants us to see three things. Number one, he wants us to see, in no uncertain terms, the rider on the white horse. That's verses 11 through 16. He wants us to see this, this great supper of God in verses 17 through 18. And then finally, God defeats his foes in verses 19 through 21. Now, our big focus is going to be the focus that John gives us. And that is the rider on the white horse. And, and as you'll see, John gives us eight reasons to worship him. Eight reasons we can have such confidence in him. And keep in mind, he's giving these reasons to the first read receivers of Revelation. A persecuted, suffering, marginalized, scapegoated, ignored group of Christians. Why they can have so much confidence that everything they've read, all the, the amazing yet difficult things they can endure and overcome. So we're going to spend most of our time there. But then, if that were not enough, John also provides a picture of what rejecting Christ is going to look like. That's what 17 and 18 is about. And then finally, the defeat of God's foes in verses 19 through 21. So look at, let's take a look at this, this rider on the white horse. Heaven opens up, and what does he see? A rider on a white horse. And John describes him. In roughly eight different ways, if you're really paying attention to the text, you see that come out. It's pretty clear. It seems that four of them are actual titles or names. Four of them seem to describe attributes of God. And, and, and I tried to see if there was some correlation. There seems to be a little bit of correlation between the names of Jesus here and his attributes. Uh, and him being Savior and, and, and Judge and, and Redeemer, all those things. But I couldn't quite see a tight connection. So what we're going to do is just kind of look at them one by one as John gives them to us. And he, he doesn't give it to us, the first the names and then the attributes. He just kind of kind of throws them out there. So let's take a look at the first one there in verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Now actually, let me back that up. You shouldn't see all of those. Let's just look at one of them. Oh, okay, I guess you're going to see all eight of them at the same time. So let's just look at the first one, faithful and true. Now, here's the thing. It seems to me odd as I'm reading where we're at in Revelation. This seems like an odd place, an odd place to lead with, right? 
I don't know if I would have led with him being faithful and true, but John does, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I got to think about how encouraging that must have been for the original readers of this book. That God does not and will not forget his people. That this Jesus Christ, that they are suffering so much for, he is in fact faithful and true in the midst of all of their struggles, in the midst of all of their trials, in the midst of all of their difficulties. They can bank on the fact that their Lord is faithful and true. He is totally dependable. And I think obviously the same is true in our time. That Jesus Christ is totally dependable and how we need to hear this in a world of constant lies and deceit. And, and, and I don't mean you know, that the, 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 what we hear in our world like fake news and all that. I'm not meaning that. But we live in a world, as we've studied the book of Revelation, that there's just lies and deceit everywhere we go. Who can we trust? Whose word can we depend upon? Whether it's a media outlet, you don't know if you can believe one outlet to another or a politician or preachers. Whose word can you trust and build your life upon? The Bible says Jesus is faithful and true. All the saviors, all the conquerors, all the kings who have ever come before have failed and have faltered. Even the great ones like Moses or David or the prophets of old. They too at some point failed and faltered, fell short in one way or another. They may have their success for a while. They may be on a successful streak, but then they blow it. They fall from grace. I did a Google search this past week. I was trying to give some illustrations. I won't. I just typed in falling from grace. It was lists and lists of politicians and celebrities and, and religious leaders, and it breaks your heart. Just reminds us at the end of the day, I don't, neither should you depend on a man or a woman because at the end of the day, we will fail. All of our heroes have clays of feet, but Jesus is different. He is, his name is that he is faithful and true, not only to God, but also to his people. What encouragement that must have brought to them. What encouragement I hope it brings to you that he knows your struggles, he knows your trials, and he is faithful in the midst of that. But we must be honest with the text. If we're looking at these, we also must acknowledge that his faithfulness actually has a dangerous side to it as well, doesn't it? His faithfulness to execute justice, his faithfulness to pass judgment, his faithfulness to right all wrongs, and faithful and true to deal with wickedness and sin, even our own. When we were going through the pastoral epistles, go back with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. When we were studying the pastoral epistles, uh, David Erickson was teaching through chapter 2 and verse 13, verse 11 to 13. I'm going to read it to you briefly. And I think he interpreted this exactly right. This is a very uh, well-known passage, but I think most of us got it wrong. I think David got it right. Remember what uh, Paul says to Timothy. This saying is trustworthy. For if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. I think most people read that and say, oh, so if I blow it, it's okay. Because even if I'm faithless, God is faithful. And that's how people typically take it. But notice what, what uh, Paul is doing here. He's setting up kind of a, a parallelism here, positive and negative. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. 
Those are the positive. Those are our obedience, and these are the rewards. But then the second two, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. What Paul is saying is that the Lord is faithful both to his promises and to his warnings. The question really isn't is, is God on my side? The question is, am I on God's side? Because God's faithfulness, the fact that he's faithful and true, while that should bring me comfort, that should also give me pause because he will always be faithful both to his promises and to his warnings. Only by seeking our refuge from him, in him, can we actually take comfort from the rider on the white horse. Because he is faithful and true in all ways, all the time. The second thing that uh, we hear about him, though, is that he, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Oh, friends, I like this. I like this because it reminds me again that Jesus is not some milk toast savior. He's not some beatnik, benevolent hippie or a nonviolent kind of a conscientious objector. Jesus actually wages war. But friends, there is no injustice in his declaration or execution of it. I find this comforting because I know in this world, as I've been living through enough political cycles as I get older, I find this very comforting because I realize in life there is rarely ever just black and white. The good guys and the bad guys often are so relative. We're all the hero, we're all the villain, sinners and saints alike. Even our heroes have feet of clay. How much more about you and I? It can be a discouraging thing. And so the question is, how can there possibly be an absolute world of righteousness and justice and peace and prosperity for all? Whose vision of humanity are we going to give ourselves to? Whose vision of humanity can we trust? History is full of failed attempts to bring back Eden for everyone. There might be Eden for a few, but then eventually it gets overthrown because it wasn't Eden for everyone. Friends, if you know history, every dangerous political economic ideology is based upon a utopian vision to bring in a golden age for all. Every single one of them, whether it was Marxism, socialism, fascism, communism, even capitalism creates its winners and losers, and on and on it goes throughout our history. Whose vision of humanity can we trust? Whose vision of humanity can actually heal the brokenness and suffering in this world? Whose vision of humanity who can deal with the evil in this world? Certainly not me, not mine. Certainly not whoever's in office right now or was before him or before him and before him or will come after him or her. Because we're all the same. The Bible says, in righteousness... He judges and makes war. In other words, Jesus can make the call, and it will always be the right call. And if it's necessary to wage war, Jesus can wage the war, and it will be right. Friends, that's what I love about the gospel. The gospel doesn't present some saccharine view of life where it's all going to be okay, we just have to hope and believe. 
the gospel understands the complexities of life, and it promises us a Savior who can see through all of life's complexities, judges accordingly, and rules benevolently but powerfully. As a matter of fact, one of the Advent Scripture verses we all look to this time of year is making this exact point. Go with me to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, very familiar passage this time of year, Isaiah chapter 9. You see this on Christmas cards. Isaiah is making this exact point in Isaiah chapter 9. I want to read verse 2 and then go down to verse 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness, well, who's that? That's us. That's all of us, the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And then verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. I'm getting my pen here, and I'm underlining government. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government... And of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. So you see me underlining these things numerous times. What am I highlighting? Words that speak about governance, throne, kingdom, government. The Bible says Jesus is the one that will establish the perfect government in peace and righteousness. It is his vision for humanity we can trust because in righteousness he judges and he will make war. And that's what we sing about every year at Christmas, is this very same vision. Go back to me with Revel in Revelation. So he is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Do you know it's just about every time Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation, there's three times specifically, chapter 1, uh, chapter 2 or 3, when he's talking to the church of Thyatira here, chapter 19. Every time Jesus shows up, guess what? His eyes are on fire. He's got flaming eyes. Well, what's this about? Well, as you recall, when we talked about the church of Thyatira, that represents like fire, all-consuming. It goes everywhere. It's purifying. In other words, Jesus sees all, knows all. Nothing is hidden from his purifying view, which is why, by the way, he can judge in righteousness. Because he sees everything, and he knows everything. Jesus doesn't have unconscious bias. Jesus doesn't have a slanted perspective. Nothing hinders his understanding. Friends, he sees you, he sees me, he sees everything and everyone truly and fully. And that is both, actually all of these attributes, all of these names of Jesus... That is both simultaneously comforting and frightening, quite frankly. It's comforting because if you are one of his and you're seeking to live in obedience, guess what? Friends, he gets that. He gets it. Even when you blow it, he knows you regret it. Even when you don't live up to what he asks you to do, he understands. And you are still his son or daughter all the time. That should be comforting, friends. You, you don't have to pretend to be super Christian, right? You don't have to play that game. You can be honest and real and say, I fail. I struggle. I'm not righteous. I need his righteousness. He gets it. That's why he gives us his righteousness. 
Amen to that, amen, brother. <laughs> but if you are faking the funk, if you're doing the Jesus thing because it just gives you social advantage or it makes you feel like a good moral person, he gets that too. And he sees through it. He can see if your Christianity is about you and not about him. If that you're using him to prop up your own life rather than make much of him. Never forget uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was a preacher from uh, London in the 19th century. He has this great illustration. And he shares a story about a gardener that he grew the biggest carrot he ever could. And he took it to his king and he said, oh, sovereign, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. I want to give it to you as a token of my affection towards you because you are the greatest king. And I've always loved you. I just want you to have it. Well, the king discerned his heart and he was touched. And he said, thank you. And as the man turned away to, to turn away to leave from the king, the king said, well, wait a minute. I own the land next to your garden. And I want you to have that land. I want you to have twice the land you have now. I want you to have all that because you're an excellent man. You're an excellent gardener. And I want you to be twice the gardener than you were before. And the man, just he just went away rejoicing. Well, there was a nobleman in the court, and he overheard this transaction. He said, what? He gets five acres of land for a carrot? Hmm. So the next day... He brought the king a horse. And he says, oh, sovereign Lord, I raise horses. I have a stable. And this is the greatest horse I've ever raised or ever will raise. And I want to give it to you as a token of my esteem and affection because I've always loved you. Well, the king discerned his heart. The king discerned his heart and told him, well, thank you very much. And he took the horse and just walks away from him. And the nobleman is kind of, you know, dumbfounded. And, and the king turns around and says, look, look, let me explain. Do you know that gardener? Yeah, he gave me that carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. Friends, if, if, if you are feeding the hungry, if you're clothing the naked, if you're doing any Christian thing because you think that's how you're going to get into heaven and that's how you become a good person, guess what? You're feeding yourself. You're clothing yourself. Whatever Christian thing you're doing, you're doing for yourself. But you're not doing it because you love him. And don't expect anything in return. You see, he sees that. He's got eyes of fire. He sees through all the pretension. He sees that you may, you may, look, you may outwardly look like a horrible Christian, but inwardly you are life as repentance and faith and grieve over your sin. He sees you're one of his. And you may outwardly look perfect, like you got it all together, and in your heart you're doing it all because you like the accolades of looking like you have it all together, and he sees that as well. That's why he is the one who judges righteously, because he has eyes of fire. John goes on to describe the rider on the white horse. Verse 12, his eyes are like flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. That one's pretty simple because we've seen this so many times in the book of Revelation. It's simply a reference to his sovereignty and his authority tied into probably verse 16. That on his thigh he has a name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is the authoritative one, the sovereign one. That's why he can judge all of humanity. I want to I move on to the, the next descriptor of him because I think it's really intriguing after it says he has many diadems diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself and I, I tried to figure this one out um, 
And, and reading wasn't very helpful because some people think this is in reference to Philippians when he talks about he has a name above all names. Some people think this is a reference to him being the name of the word of God or one of the other names. But this is the conclusion I've come to. I think it just this name speaks to his mystery, his inscrutability. And the fact that no scholar has a certain idea of what it means proves my point. We have no idea. And, and I kind of like the fact that, and I could be wrong, but I like the fact that this is a name that no one knows. Only Jesus knows this about himself. What I think that tells me is that you will never fully know God. You cannot analyze him. You cannot scrutinize him. Therefore, you cannot pass judgment on God. There are just some things about God we will never know. And I think there's a part of it. Some, some of you are like, amen, that's right, that's God. And some of you are like, no, I don't like that. I don't mean to characterize that. I do that because that's how I was. Because there's a certain sense of our modern age of hubris that we think we should be able to know everything because our sense of knowledge gives us control. We live in the modern age and we think everything can be explained. Everything should be explainable to us. And if it's not, it's not rational and we don't have to accept it. And yet time and again, we're confronted with things we cannot simply explain. We have to exercise the humility to just bow our knee and accept. You see, we want explanations all the time. And sometimes we just need to have the humility to accept things. I'm not saying we check our brains out at the door. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to recognize the cultural time we live in and how we are influenced by all of this and reject those things. Because we live in the age of, well, the post-age of enlightenment and rationalism, you know, 17th, 8th, 19th century, where we discovered things like gravity and thought, oh, the universe, we can figure it all out. It's just a finely tuned machine. That view that came from Newton and Galileo and ushered in the time of the age of rationalism and the age of modernity, we thought we can explain the world and we can be the master of the world. This is what led to the concept of science is king. Because science, the hard sciences, understands the world. And we can figure it all out. And yet the irony is, science has also told us, we don't have a clue what's going on out there. You see, Galileo and Newton, they helped us discover that God had designed a universe that can be knowable. And we, in our hubris and pride, said, well, then we don't need God because now we know it all. But now scientists, guys like Albert Einstein, Werner Heisenberg, uh, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, the, the uncertainty principle and Einstein's theory of special and general relativity made us realize, oh, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand at all. To quote the British scientist, J.B.S. Haldane, the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, it is stranger than we can imagine. You see, the Christian worldview is just simply being honest to say that humanity requires revelation. That humanity is needy. We will not figure it all out. If we think we can figure everything out, that just shows our hubris. When you look around our world, we're trying to figure everything out. Look, I don't want to get political about it, but we are not going to figure out the dynamics of a virus. We are not going to outdo nature. We are just creations, and we do not sit above all these realities. But it requires humility to say, I will never truly fully know, and I submit myself to things greater than I am. That doesn't mean we don't struggle and learn and, and, and study virology and all those things. I'm not saying that. 
But I'm saying we have to realize we live in a world where just need a little bit of human beings in a vast creation that God has made. And we will never understand it all. He has a name that no one knows but himself. He is inscrutable to us at the end of the day. And by the way, if you could learn everything there was to know about God, would he really be God to you? Right? Could he really capture your imagination if you could explain him entirely? Could he really inspire you if he was so predictable to you? Could you really have confidence in him if you knew the limits of his power? Friends, we might apprehend him because he makes himself known, but we'd be foolish to think we can comprehend him fully. And as the rider on the white horse comes out, we realize one of his names is inscrutability to us. We will never know enough of him to be able to cast judgment upon him. And he makes that clear. Let's look at the sixth name or title. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Friends, this is just a a graphic reminder to the prayer that Jeff prayed for us in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah, uh, in his book, depicts for us what's called the messianic warrior. Isaiah chapter 11, we get a glimpse of it. But particularly in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3, where where Isaiah is prophesying. And there is a servant of God, and he is in a robe that's just splattered with blood. And they look at him, I'm paraphrasing for you, and they say, what is this? Why are you so full of blood? And he says, I have come from crushing out the vine vine of God's wrath and, and crushing his enemies. In other words... It's their blood that's splattered upon him. It's it's a graphic, visceral picture of God metting out justice on his enemies. And and this is what's used to describe the rider on the white horse. Now, what's interesting, however, though, in our passage here in Revelation 19, the battle hasn't taken place yet, has it? And so the rider on the white horse, he's coming out with a robe dipped in blood, splattered with blood, but the the fight hasn't taken place. So whose blood is it? I'm thinking it's his blood. I'm thinking that it's his blood because he has already taken the wrath of God on behalf of humanity. That is another possible interpretation. And the great thing about apocalyptic literature, it it probably could be both, right? It's an allusion to the prophecies we see in the Old Testament forecasting with certainty what's going to come to pass. But it also can be read in, in light of redemptive history that this rider on the white horse, the reason he is the righteous one is because he laid his life down on behalf of us. So that robe dipped in blood could very well be his own blood as well as those of the enemies of God. Either way, friends... It's a visual reminder that sin brings bloodshed. Sin brings death because death is the price of sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, it is a message that in this cosmic battle of good and evil, either Jesus' blood will be shed for you Or your blood will be shed. Because the price of sin has to be paid. And either Jesus pays it, or you pay it. And I know, friends, I get it. In our kind of humanistic world where we're trying to always domesticate Jesus, right? We're always trying to domesticate the things of God. You've heard me go on my rants about how we make angels. We've read about what angels look like, right? What do angels look like on a Hallmark card? Do they look anything like what we've learned here? No, right? They're like fat, puffy, little effeminate boy babies. We're always trying to domesticate God so he's not frightening to us. 
And I know the picture of Jesus here, and he's in a robe dipped in blood, sounds so unseeker-friendly. But the biblical truth is, friends, the only thing that matches the loving kindness, compassion, and mercy of the Lord is his fury and wrath and hatred towards sin. They're not mutually exclusive. These emotions are not mutually exclusive. Ask any father in this church with little ones. And they know if anyone or anything wants to bring harm upon their children, they will visit wrath upon that individual or institution or thing. Such violence, friends, is not contrary to love. It is the deep expression of love. And so it's no different here. Ask any husband here. You hurt their bride and we will, what? Punch you in the throat. That's right. <laughs> Such violence is not a contradiction of my love. It is an expression of that love. If you love something greatly, you will hate other things that challenge that love. We know that. Why would it be any different from the Lord? Why should we be shocked when we hear about this God who will wage war, it's because he's a God that loves passionately. And because of that, he has fury against sin and wickedness. Seventh and finally, oh, um, he is the word of God. Uh, verse 13, clothe in the robe. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Now, you know, if you're familiar with your Bibles, John's gospel calls Jesus the word of God. And John says he is the source of creation and the light of man, right? And, and biblically speaking, and this is probably true of most ancient religions as well, light has always been a symbol of revelation, clarity, and truth. It's no different in Christianity. But as God's word, Jesus is also the final revelation of God himself. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 states. Uh, I should have put verse 1 up there. Maybe next hour I will. But verse 1 talks about in the past, God spoke to us through his prophets, bringing his revelation of himself. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Thus, Jesus, as God's full and final revelation of himself, Jesus also acts as the arbiter of God's judgment, which is why the word of God here acts in a judicial role. Did you notice that? Look at verse 15. In verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then skip down to verse 21, we see the same dynamic. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. The sword that comes from his mouth, friends, that, that is not to be taken literally, right? There's not a, a picture of the, how bizarre would that be, a sword coming out of his mouth, killing everyone. That's not what's going on. What's happening here in symbolic language is that the sword that comes from his mouth is the testimony of Christ's perfect life, which condemns all of humanity's attempt to establish its own righteousness. In other words, the perfect life of Christ decimates your attempt, my attempt to say, I'm a righteous person, I don't need your grace, I don't need repentance, because his perfect life and obedience to the Father condemns my puny efforts. That's exactly what the word does. Romans chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, or the word of God, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped. So we shut up. We're silent before him. And the whole world 
may be held accountable to God. Friends, this is Jesus. All eight descriptors. This is Jesus. And we have to have this picture of Jesus in your mind during this season as surely as you have a picture of him as a baby in a manger. Revelation 19 and Luke 2, it's the same individual. And friends, by the way, if, if you felt that a baby in a manger is a hard sell to be the savior of such a broken and destroyed world, maybe the rider on the white horse is an easier for the task because he's going to take care of business. Okay, okay, I got it. That was point one. <laughs> point two. So quickly, we, we see, look at verse 17. So we see this description of the rider on the white horse, right? And, and then verse 17, I saw there's a second marker, the second literary marker. We're describing a, a gruesome feast, right? How, how appropriate and ironic on thank, the weekend of Thanksgiving. We're describing a gruesome feast that includes all of humanity, the great and the small, kings and captains, the mighty man, everyone, slave and free. And this is intentional, by the way. This, this great supper of God is in direct contrast and such close proximity to what we read last week, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Two totally different feasts. They're put there for a reason. So that we can be shocked by the contrast. And what's in between those feasts? This is where sometimes chapter, verse divisions, and, and sermon series can be unhelpful. What's in between those two feasts? The rider on the white horse. Our response, friends, to the rider on the white horse determines which feast we're going to be a part of. Everyone you know, every man, woman, and child that has ever been on this planet will be at one of these two feasts. The marriage supper of the Lamb or the great supper of God. We are supposed to be taken aback by just the goriness of this picture. There is a sense in which, friends, I can just go through this point really quickly. How we respond to the picture of Jesus that we just described in verses 11 to 16 determines which of these feasts we're at. If you recognize the rider on the white horse and say, this is a frightening picture, yet it's also a comforting picture, but I recognize he hates sin, and I can either embrace my sin or I can turn from my sin and throw myself at his mercy, then I'm going to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if I refuse him, if I rebel against him, if I resist him and say, how dare you, I'm the captain of my own soul, and I rebel against him, I'm going to be in the great supper of God. And we see that right here, verses 19 and 21. Uh, in some sense, verse 19, look at verse 19. And I saw, a third literary marker, the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who's sitting on the horse and against his army. This has got to be the most absurd proposition in light of what we just read. I mean, in light of the description of Jesus, this is crazy Say, yeah, yeah, I think I can take him. Let's go. What? But friends... This is what the human heart always does. This is just what we do. Now, now we, we say, I'd do it differently then because we're looking at a grand epic battle. But remember, the, the, the point of Revelation is not to say this is some physical event that's going to happen in the future. This is life right now. Every day. How are you submitting to the rider on the white horse? But that's the human heart. We go to war against Christ. 
This is the foolishness of sin. The Puritans call it the mystery of iniquity. We do what we shouldn't do against all odds. And whether it's, it, it's spiritual deception, like chapter 16, verse 13, you remember the frogs are going out into the world, deceiving all the world to bring their armies to fight against God. Whether it's that spiritual deception there, or maybe it's false teaching that we learned, read about in Revelation 13 from the false prophet, deceiving people to take the mark of the beast. This is what sin does. Friends, this is why God's truth God's truth, not your feelings, not your desires, not your wants, not your appetites, not your preferences, need to guide your life. As elders, we have been dealing for months now with people who are calling themselves Christians, and they're dominated by their own teachings. They're dominated by their feelings and their desires, and they're rebelling against the rider on the white horse, all the while proclaiming Christ. And yet showing that they're going to come against him, rejecting his word. God's truth has to guide you. God's truth has to guide you. Obedience, not our convenience or comfort. So important, friends. So important. But notice, we got to quickly move along here. There simply is no contest, is there? Verse 20. I mean, this great battle, it's just over in a moment. And the beast was captured. Dun, dun, dun. So they all got together. Beast was captured. False prophet in his presence had been captured, thrown into the lake of fire. It's actually kind of anticlimactic when you think about it. They all show up with fanfare, and God's like, well, uh, you're done. The word that comes from his mouth. Then we sang that song this morning, and Savannah beautifully sang for us from Martin Luther. Uh, I think I got the third verse up here. And, and though this world with devils filled, right, and that what we're reading about, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Why? For God hath willed. His truth, his truth, not my feelings, not your preferences, not your desires, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. For his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Oops, we missed the word lyric there. It's supposed to say, one word shall fell him done in a moment. Friends, all rebellions must and will fail. National, spiritual, personal. Because there's only one King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, I realize that this is not the Jesus you were expecting at Advent. But Jesus is never really what we expect, is he? He is always much more than we imagined or bargained for. Friends, as you go into this week, here's my closing thought, question to you. What aspect of Jesus do you need to be challenged with this week? What aspect of Jesus do you need to be comforted with by this week? Because Jesus will always do both. Because he is the baby in the manger and the rider on the white horse. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just worship First of all, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us and, 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 and decimate any rebellion in our hearts against the lordship of Christ in our lives. That you would help us cling to your truth, to your word, to biblical teaching, to live a life oriented around truth, not around what we want. Father, help us to have the humility to recognize we will not always understand, maybe more importantly, we may not always like what you're doing but we trust you. Father, you don't need to explain yourself to us because you're trustworthy. 
Help the rebellion in our hearts against that be quelled. Father, that we might trust you and flourish because you promise, you invite us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where we want to be, Lord. Save us from the great supper of God. Save us from our foolishness. Save us from ourselves. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org. Thank you.